At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now, but I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. We expect to be a, you know, we know how, uh, you know, all the teams are prepared. I mean, hope we have we're going to be in a in a tough division, and we're going to face some tough teams this year in our in our in our schedule, and we know that, and uh, we feel that we're built to win. I mean, we have a great roster, we have great position players with versatility, we have a great um, starting rotation or, or pitchers that you know that have the starting uh, starting history, Cy Youngs, World Series winners, uh, and an and a bullpen with a lot of guys that have. You know, history of saving games, being closer. So, um, it's a it's a team that's built to win. So, right now, the thing that's gonna keep this keep us moving and keep us uh, uh, um, moving to the direction where we want to go is this: is spring training. You know, it starts tomorrow. So, preparing and 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 just to put ourselves in the position that we're gonna be ready for challenges that a regular season brings. You know, I think that's that's the key for us because we know we're gonna. We're going to face some tough competition throughout the season. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, February the 16th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. Send me an email, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. And of course, you can get the show on whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm on Spotify and Apple Podcasts which are two of the main ones. Welcome in, everybody, to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. And, uh, you know, first week of spring training is down in another wild week. Lots to talk about. And no guests today. I want to unpack a bunch of stuff. I promise in the coming weeks I have some real fun guests planned. But I really wanted to make it about me and giving you some of my thoughts on the various things that are going down uh, in spring training, as uh, there's tons to talk about here. But you heard the clip coming into the broadcast of Luis Rojas 
some of his thoughts uh, as he talked about the focus of this team in, in his first spring training. And what I wanted to say and the, why I started with that is because I don't want any of you as you read the papers and you, you get on Twitter or whatever, you know, Instagram or whatever you're, you're following, going in message boards or however you consume media, radio, whatever, and get too caught up in ancillary stuff. You're going to hear rumors about ownership and who's interested in the Mets. Now you hear A-Rod's name, which may be exciting a lot of you guys, or you may be getting so caught up in when is ownership changing. It's all gossip. Nobody knows who is going to be the next owner. Nobody knows right now uh, the process and, and who's in the lead or if any bids have been made. That's a business story, a high-level business transaction and honestly, nobody who covers the team from a sports perspective, and, and no disrespect because I love the New York Post. It's probably, probably the best sports paper out there. There's no doubt, actually, that it's the best sports paper out there. I think the only other publication, and it's an electronic one that comes even close, is The Athletic uh, when it comes to covering, uh, uh, at least when I, I look at it from a Mets perspective. And... Uh, you know, nobody who covers uh, uh, the team over there really is going to be qualified to have a business conversation or really dive deep into the business world. Uh, this is going to be something that's going to be coming out of Bloomberg or Forbes or, you know, maybe a place that we're totally, totally not paying attention to. So uh, just keep that in mind as we uh, move forward with that transaction. So some rumors about A-Rod, put it to the side. Also, when you start to see things like the Mets clubhouse in Port St. Lucie, which became a topic this week, a lot of anger on Twitter because the Mets have decided that they built this brand new as they renovate now what's now Clover Field, their home ballpark in Port St. Lucie. They have a, a really state-of-the-art clubhouse for the Major League Baseball players, and then they have a minor league clubhouse, which just, and I haven't taken the tour, just from the photos, both clubhouses look really uh, first rate, uh, whether it's the big league clubhouse, the big league portion, or the minor league portion. And uh, I think what the Mets have said, and I actually reached out to a former Mets player this week and asked him his opinion. And uh, he laughed and said, look, you know, you got to earn that spot in the big league clubhouse. The fact that there are fans and bloggers or pundits that are thinking that it's unfair for the organization not to allow the minor leaguers to use that clubhouse at any point, especially during uh, when they move up north during the season, is laughable. And I guess the statement that the Mets had made there where they talked about, well, it's giving them motivation to earn it, I don't think that was meant to throw in their faces their state of where they are in terms of ranking in the ball game. I think it's about showing them the, uh, the spoils and the rewards that come with becoming a big league baseball player. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I also think you have to realize, and I spoke to a scout about this, uh, where he said, you know, as he interned, as he made his way through baseball, he had to sleep on a mattress with six other people. Now, I don't really think the living conditions and some of the things that go on in minor league baseball are, uh, you know, good. And I certainly am all for them making more money. And I know that's a complicated topic. But to make an issue out of the Mets clubhouse and how they view it and how they're using it, as a, a, a training and motivation tool is utterly absurd, absurd. And it just shows you how you have to be really careful today, 
especially when it comes to the coverage of this team, about really what's important and, and where the story is. Because to me, if you listen to that opening clip, the story with the Mets first week of spring training is the seriousness and the work that every player seems to be bringing to the table. Whatever interview that you hear about getting ready for 2020 and doing their part within what their role is to be the best player they can be. And this is a team that comes across very serious about winning. Now, it's early. First week of spring training, every team could probably make that claim. But I've been watching this team for a long time, especially under the Collins years, especially since they went to the World Series in 2015 and we've been doing this podcast. And I never quite felt 100% comfortable with the way they went about attacking the organization from top to bottom, you know, how they went about preparing for a season, getting guys in positions to win, really laying the groundwork for a team, a blue-collar team with a work ethic and a focus on winning. Now, talent obviously will come into play, but you hear it also in Luis Rojas's comments, whether it be the clip I played for you or maybe some of the other clips that have been out there. Where Rojas has impressed me early on is he's very much focused on the theme of work and preparation. Just sticking to the facts. He's actually boring. I mean, that's really what is going to be a problem for the media. He's boring. He's talking boring baseball things. Because if you keep repeating, hey, we're out there preparing and working and really just continue the basics of what the job really is, which is a lot of little things throughout the course of a season that lead up to great things. A lot of little, small, boring things. Most of the time, games are won or lost in the heat of spring training at 11 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the afternoon before a night game when there's all the different types of preparations, the side sessions, um, the way that you uh, uh, recover, you know, health, all these other things that are not really the sexy entertainment part, the things that you really don't want to hear an hour podcast on, those are the things that go into winning. And maybe it's because Rojas has been at the development level of this uh, organization now for over a decade, 15 years. Uh, maybe it's because he was the quality control coach and part of that role was helping with preparation, that he's very focused on it. All I know is is that the seriousness that he's brought early on here and the seriousness that you hear from not only the star players, but guys all the way down to Brad Brock who are working on their craft, uh, that to me shows you that things are different around here. And if they're going to win, and Brody Van Wagenen has talked about it, if they're going to win, it's going to take a lot of these marginal uh, improvements, these small preparations that really at the end of the day is part of winning and losing out there. And uh, that's my impression of Rojas. Now, there's nothing bad about that. He's boring. He's very workmanlike. You know, he's out there to, to, to get into the weeds and really uh, do his part as a front office hired manager with the direction of the front office to support his players. Uh, you know, that is going to make for bad copy as time goes on. Uh, they're probably going to eventually try to take something he says and bait him. Uh, that's inevitable. It won't happen now. And really because, and we'll get to that in a little bit, because they really don't like the media, Brody Van Wagen, and he's really the target, the focus of a lot of their ire. Um, he may be able to get a pass regardless of how good or bad these guys play this year. Uh, throughout his first uh, season on the job. So, you know, so far so good. Uh, seamless transition, quite honestly, from the craziness of January and the firing of Carlos Beltran 
to uh, you know getting basically this job two weeks before spring training, uh, and and to me they could not have picked a better person to uh, transition into this odd situation than Luis Rojas. He just really comes across, uh, you know, just very steady, very mature, no ego. There's no marketing of himself so far. There's no you know fake comments or you know. And I think that's what hurt Mickey Calloway, just throwing comments out there to get the media off his back or think about what they want to hear. Just be yourself. Be honest. You know, protect your players, but don't be goofy about it. Don't be insincere about it. As I always say, you have to manage that clubhouse. You have to manage up with your bosses. You have to manage the media. And and some of that all intertwines. And you have to be able to manage a bullpen. And that becomes a little bit harder this year because, and we'll talk about the new rules in a bit, the three batter minimum. So, uh, a lot of positives in my first impressions of Rojas. Very early, a lot more to uh, uh, at stake here as time goes on. A lot more uh, opportunities for things to uh, transpire. A lot more uh, uh, times where we'll be able to, you know, potentially hear him in, in a tough spot and or a tough decision or a tough conversation. But so far, so good. So that's where we're at. That's what's important. That's what you should take away from this week. Not Port St. Lucie clubhouses. Not who's going to be the next owner and, and, and gossip that's, you know, just gossip. It's about baseball, and there's a lot of good baseball. There's a, a certain seriousness and a focus to this team, whether it's Noah Syndergaard, Pete Alonzo, Brad Brock, Dom Smith, Marcus Stroman, some of the names you've heard early on, uh, among others, that should make you feel really excited about 2020 and, and at least how this team is starting to lay the foundation of what could be a very fun summer, and we hope it'll be a fun summer so that we could have lots of fun on this podcast. So let's take a quick break. When we return, Brody Van Wagenen versus Zach Wheeler. Why did I tell you this was going to be the case? Why did I tell you this was going to happen? And why it needs to end right now, right after this. We pull no punches with opinions on the Talking Mets podcast, like when Kevin Kernan of the New York Post, also known as America's Most Beloved Sports Writer, took aim at negative Mets fans during a recent segment. Uh, a lot of ways, Mets fans got to grow up, you know. They uh, they want it both ways all the time. We'll come to the owners, that's life, deal with it. And uh, that's why the thing I wrote about the Mets way has nothing to do with ownership. The new group in charge, now whether they know what they're doing, we'll soon see. But they certainly made, to me, a right choice in Louis Rojas. Alec Baird has done a terrific job getting, uh, getting the team um, evaluating over the last year and then putting together a system that helps really for the future. They, they basically, the best way I can put it is there was no communications between different levels of uh, minor league clubs, and now they're all on the same page. That's, you know, the Cardinals' way is pretty famous, and the Mets are trying to do that as well. They're trying to make sure that if you learn something in double A, it's not different when you get to the majors, whether it's signs or, or uh, an approach. Uh, mentality, and also Louis Rojas is a, is a teacher, so you know he's he's got like sixteen hundred games managed under his belt. That's sixteen hundred more than Mickey Callaway had when he came in. Sixteen hundred more than Carlos Beltran had when he came by for a little visit. So you know this this, this whole thing about the world is fall. It's snowflakes. Mets fans are snowflakes. Much like with what's going on in society now. Let's deal with it. Move forward. If you don't like it, you know, go, go boot for another team. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. 
All right, we're back. And listen, the Mets have handled some of the initial media distractions that could potentially become stories and become bigger than they are really well. I mean, Jake Marisnik and J.D. Davis coming right out. Remember, all you have to do is apologize and show remorse and show contrition. Put your head down. Let the media beat you. Make sure that make sure that there's a public shaming. If the media gets a public shaming and you're humble, they leave you alone. And Jake Marisnik and J.D. Davis did that. It's amazing that those two guys had to do that, where Jarrett Cole apparently didn't. And I understand that he wasn't on the 2017, 2017 team, but I just find that interesting. Keep that in the back of your head because it's amazing how certain people get treated by the media versus others. But be that as it may, I, I told you and I told you guys this back the minute that Zach Wheeler signed with the Philadelphia Phillies. And it wouldn't have mattered if it was the, the Phillies, the White Sox, the, whoever he signed with, that there were going to be people that write for a New York publication that are going to spend more time focused on Zach Wheeler this year when he is not New York than they ever did when he was a member of the New York Mets. Now that he's in Philadelphia, he's going to be the most popular Met by far. doesn't matter who. He'll be more popular this year than Pete Alonso because basically they want to stir the pot. And they don't like Brody. And they don't like the fact that, uh, you know, they, 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 just, they don't like Brody. Let's put it this way. We've gone through all that. And I think a lot of it is that Brody doesn't really play favorites. He doesn't leak. And I've always said this, and it's even with the fans, which maybe goes back to the Jared Kilnick uh, situation, which I really wish people would let go. When you listen to Brody Van Wagen and talk, he doesn't lie to you. He talks corporate. You may have to read through the lines there. But if you go back to any of his clips... Whether you heard him talk, which he talked very little about the managerial position when they were looking to hire a manager, to the GM meetings in early November when they were setting the tone on the kind of uh, contracts they were willing to sign uh, this offseason, to his comments about Zach Wheeler. Uh, They were only going to sign Zach Wheeler, the Mets, if Zach Wheeler came at the price that they were comfortable with. And it was clear very early into the offseason because the Wheeler's analytical peripheral numbers that teams that did not have the depth of starting pitching that the Mets had were going to value Wheeler more for their rotation than the Mets would for theirs, where he would be further down in the pecking order. And it will remain to be seen if the Mets are wrong and the Phillies are right. And it could come out that way, but I will tell you it's not a shoo-in, and a lot of people are making it out to be a shoo-in. So there's no clips about it, but Greg Joyce of the New York Post uh, went to go talk to Zach Wheeler in Philly's camp. And, and Wheeler, you could tell he's upset. His comment, if you haven't heard it, he said, you know, to the extent that he wasn't surprised that he didn't hear back from the Mets because it's them, it's how they roll. And he talked about an organization where a lot of different people were not on the same page when it came to, uh, you know, what who wants to do what. And that's a common criticism with the Mets. And it's a very fair criticism because I think throughout times in their history, especially under Will Pond ownership. Um, it's been, a, and Steve Phillips has talked about this, it's been a very collegial type of uh, management structure where anybody at any time could come in and, and potentially sway decisions uh, based on, you know, whether Fred is into something or Jeff is into something or what have you. And uh, I think, and you saw Kevin Kernan, who was on the show last week, uh, and you, you read his column, if you haven't, I suggest you do over at, the New York Post, where he talks about the Mets' way. And uh, Kevin basically says the Mets are trying to get everybody on the same page. They're trying to get one mindset. And I really think that Jeff uh, is trying to give Brody 
the power to really manage and collaborate with all these different people that he has working for him, the Allard Bairds, the Omar Manayas, the Jared Banners, you know, different members of the organization up and down the analytics department. So I think that this comment by Wheeler, albeit fair, I think is something that the Mets are working on and doing better. And if you listen from day one, and I don't know where Wheeler's getting that everyone had a different opinion. Brody Van Wagenen came out on you know early November and said they'll keep a look on his market, we'll, they'll see where it goes, and they'll see if the value of where other teams value Zach Wheeler matches theirs. And the answer, quite simply, is it did not. And then Van Wagenen, rightfully, uh, you know, when it was questioned back in the winter, when he went somewhere else, rightfully uh, came out and explained why the Mets didn't sign him. And now everybody's angry at him. The media's angry at him. Some fans are angry at him. Well, he could have just said, um, you know, you know, congratulations on a payday and, and let's move on. And I guess he could have. But then he's smart enough to know that he'll be criticized for, for covering for the team, covering for the fact they didn't have any money. Basically, all these conspiracy theories would have came out of that particular situation. And I think he doesn't want that. He doesn't want the team to have that stigma. It hurts business. It hurts his ability to go out there and negotiate other contracts. It's not the way you should communicate with your stakeholders, meaning the media and the fans. So that honesty now gets Wheeler mad. Listen, Wheeler was probably mad because he wanted to stay. Why wouldn't you? There's a good thing going on. He's comfortable here. Uh, you know, he, he had, he had uh, everything. I, if you put Wheeler in a room and you gave him truth serum, Everything being equal, as long as that was the $118 million that he was get, getting, he was going to sign with the Mets. He wanted to be close to the Northeast because that's where his fiance is from. Uh, obviously, Philadelphia checks off that box because the White Sox offered him more from, from reports. So when Brody comes back and um, you know defends the Mets saying there was crickets, basically the Mets said, here's what we value at. Clearly, they weren't interested in a $17 million one-year qualifying offer or a shorter-term deal. And go out, get your market, come back to us. If the value matches up, we'll do it. And it didn't. And for the fans or the media to criticize Van Wagen and act like he's trashing a player on the way out, that's what they do in Boston. They don't do that here. And I don't think Brody's doing that at all. I think Brody's just giving you how they evaluated a business decision. And I, I listen, I wanted Zach Wheeler back. I'd love to have Zach Wheeler in the rotation over Rick Porcello. And I probably would love to have Zach Wheeler in the rotation over Steven Matz, although I think Matz has tons of untapped potential that we still may not see. But I also understand that signing Wheeler to a five-year deal could impact their ability to sign a Marcus Stroman or Noah Syndergaard or bring in a reliever like Dylan Matanzas. And I understand that there's more to building a team than just signing Zach Wheeler. I also am not sure Zach Wheeler long-term is a better investment than Noah Syndergaard or Marcus Stroman. I don't know that. And I guess we'll find out. Out of all the pitchers in the rotation, if you add DeGrom, who got an extension early last year, um, I don't know if Wheeler would be even the second or third of that group that I'd put that kind of money in. I think he'd probably be fourth. And I think looking at options for one or two years over Wheeler is not a bad situation for the Mets to do. So this is going to be an ongoing theme. And maybe Wheeler goes out there and has a DeGrom-like year and competes for the Cy Young. And, oh, boy, if that happens, there's going to be plenty of happy media members in New York. And you'll have every start. every Listen, every start where a Met, Porcello, Mats, Waka in particular, do bad, and, DeGrom, and, excuse me, and Wheeler does well or has better numbers, 
they will bring it up. And it will mean nothing. And I don't care if the Mets are 15 games ahead of anybody in the NL East or they're 15 games ahead of the Phillies. Every single time, if there's any doubt about the Mets, where they are in the standings, they will point to Wheeler and they will go back to it. When that is an unfair way of looking at it because it's in a vacuum and it's not necessarily how you could build a team. Sure, you want to have five number ones, you can you know argue that that would be a great rotation. The Yankees who signed Jared Cole were looking, and this is this is fact. It's out there to shop J Hap, a very serviceable back end of the rotation starter, a veteran, because they needed to clear some salary. And until James Paxton got hurt, uh, you know they that was on the table. That was on the table for them to do. So, um, it's silly. There's no reason to make this more than it is. Van Wagenen did nothing wrong, and I have no problem with the. And this is the most important thing. I have no problem with how the Mets looked at the valuation of Zach Wheeler. We've talked about that a billion times. So, um, you know, to me, this is, again, noise. It's what's, uh, what you get in spring training. Sometimes you get it a little later in spring when it gets boring because you have a lot of the feel-good stories now. Unfortunately, this week with the sign stealing and things like that, you know, we'll uh, – you know, you hear a little bit more of this nonsense and what have you. So, anyway, that's it. We should turn the page. I'm sure this is going to come up again. Wheeler's going to come up again. And, guys, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm looking at this wrong. Maybe the Mets should have given Wheeler five years. And maybe a year and a half to two years into this, we'll be looking at that deal being a steal for the Mets, especially if Syndergaard or Stroman break down or maybe their markets go bananas and somebody gives them a crazy contract, you know, a Jared Cole contract, and the Mets say, ugh. You know, that's a little bit much. And, and then you'll say, you know, you could have had a very reasonable facsimile for five years at $118 million. I still have my doubts. I've gone through this. I've, I've told you the numbers against the Nats and the Braves and the Yankees last year and some of his failures on the road in big spots. I just think Zach Wheeler is someone that's going to look like a number one and feel like a number one some days, but it's going to leave you wanting overall. And I think you could get a lot of the same things out of who you have here now in the Strowmans and the Syndergaards and some than you would have by uh, re-signing Zach Wheeler. So that's it. That should be the end of it. It won't be, but that's my take on Van Wagenen versus Wheeler, which became a big story throughout the week. And I just find it absurd that anybody would criticize Brody Van Wagenen for his comments or for him being honest and talking about why the Mets made a decision. He never trashed Wheeler. He was being factual. And sometimes, guys, the truth hurts. And I got to agree with Kevin Kernan. I think Mets fans sometimes don't like hearing the truth. They want the truth. They claim they want the truth. Then they get the truth, and it, and it hurts because it's not the truth that they want. And then they claim it's a smear campaign. Well, go root for the Red Sox. See how they treat players on the way out over there because uh, I've seen plenty of smear campaigns, and, and this ain't one of them. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Pete Alonso emerges from a winner of hibernation. The polar bear is out of hibernation. He had some things to say. And he's got a lot of challenges himself ahead of himself this year. And he's already saying the right things. Is he for real? Can this be for real? We'll see what's up with Pete Alonso right after this. I mean, it's one goal. There's there's one goal, and that's um, and, and that's to win a World Series. Like, I want to be celebrating on, on a parade throat, junk as hell, like, w- celebrating <laughs> with my boys. Like, um, like that. that's that's the goal. I want to be having good times with... Um, uh, with everybody celebrating, holding up the trophy. I mean, I mean, not just there's so many people that work hard, and um, there's so many of my teammates that work hard, and 
also, I mean, the fans deserve that as well. So, I mean, we're, we're going to work as hard as we can and we're going to push to make, make it happen. I, I think everyone wants to be a champion, but for me, winning a gold glove is, would be really special. And, but as I, I work extremely hard, uh, not in all assets of my game, but uh, just because so many people told me I couldn't, I was a bad defender. So many people said, counted me out on it. But just to win that and throw it in their face would be awesome. It was uh, the only different thing is a lot more people knew knew my name, uh, but um, a lot a lot was the same. Uh, it still continued uh, my strong work ethic. Still continued my off season routine. Um, I, I'm I'm feeling so good about 2020. I'm, and also um, it was different in a positive way because last year I was kind of in a gray. I was in limbo. Uh, I had an opportunity to make the team. Uh, I mean, with the team not having to bring me up, I didn't know what was going to happen. There was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things were were justified and, and clarified, uh, not just in spring training, but throughout the 2019 season. So um, I, it's really cool to, to figure out that's like what I've been doing has it works. And I'm, I'm really happy with the position I put myself in. And I'm just so excited to and, and motivated to keep keep pushing and, and see what what else is possible? I do demand a lot for myself, which I, I think is a is a strong characteristic, and that and that helps me with with my edge. Um, and demanding a lot for myself, whether it be early work, actually doing physical work, or, or the prep, I, f- I feel like that's a necessity to to have game time success. I think being myself has has gotten me to to where I am right now. I feel like I'm in a really good spot, but. Uh, if I start to change or deviate from who I am or what I'm trying to do, then um, I, I don't think that that will equal. I don't think that will equal success for me. I want to be as successful as I possibly can. I want to be the best person I can be. I just want to not just improve as a baseball player, but constantly evolve as a as a human being as well. Because I mean, playing playing baseball is just a job. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm still I'm still just a guy. So I want to be the best person I can possibly be. Now that we have so many of the similar faces in the locker room as last year, um, and then also with a couple of new great additions, I think we got we have what it takes. So it's, I mean, it's good vibes in the locker room. I, I feel that I, I just can't wait for games to start. Not many times can you see a young man like Pete Alonzo, and I said this a number of times last year, uh, come in, have the impact he had on the field, have the self-awareness off the field, and really organically take over a leadership role on the team. And you heard those clips, and you start to just, and I always say this, like, what's the catch? I mean, my cynicism continues to take over. And we talked about this last week on our spring training kickoff show with Kevin Kernan. Well, if he starts believing the hype and he starts to change, and he addresses this, as you heard in those comments, and maybe starts to you know worry about home runs and home runs only, then maybe there's a reason to be, to be worried. But you've already heard, you've heard Luis Rojas very accurately talk about how it's not about numbers with Pete. Uh, it's not about chasing numbers, about just being himself, uh, you know, continuing to, uh, you know, work uh, on on being the best baseball player. And now you even hear Pete talking about improving his defense. And, and he's been on record for a while, especially as he became a national story at the All-Star break last year uh, with his whole, you know, 
what was it in college? He had to write the uh, the essay about being a baseball player and and proving his professor wrong. Pete has an edge and a chip on his shoulder because he continuously gets told he can't do things. And there are going to be a number of people in the media, uh, not maliciously maybe, but are going to start to maybe compare. Let's say he starts out two for 15 his first three or four games. And it'll be, well, you know, are they figuring Pete Alonso out? And maybe, you know, 50 games into the season, maybe his home runs are not quite at the same rate. Well, was it a, a juiced ball? I'm not worried about hitting 53 home runs, 50 home runs. You know, if Pete Alonso provides the Mets solid power, produces runs, plays at or above the defensive level that he did last year, and continues to be the vocal leader, leader with a focus, and you could hear it in his voice, it's all about winning and the team and about, again, you heard that word preparation because I think that's a theme that you're going to hear throughout the spring. The Mets are not about marketing. They're not about marketing who they are or talking about what they did last year or just talking about what they want to do. I really get the sense they're trying to put the work in to achieve it. And I think it starts with Alonzo and some of the things that he does. And it's going to be really important for Alonzo to stay away from the temptation to start chasing the numbers. Now, he's talking the right talk now. And Rojas is talking the right talk with him. But he gets in. Let's say he goes his first 15 games of the year and hits one home run. Is it going to be that easy? See, these are the challenges he's going to face this year. Similar to what I said about DeGrom last year, where he was chasing himself. And we brought up Gooden. And anybody who followed the Mets in the 80s, knows that after 85, and we know about the drugs and the off-the-field stuff, but put that aside, Gooden could not have been as good as he was in 85 forever. The drugs and the off-the-field, sure, played a big part in that. Part in that. But he also, he's a human being too, and he was a two-pitch pitcher, and the league was adjusting to him, and he had a lot of pressure on himself, and even though he was still really good in 86, and he was still really good in 87, uh, he wasn't 85 Doc. He wasn't even at times an 86 and 87, 84 Doc, which is a pretty good Doc. So Alonzo's going to be facing that. DeGrom went through his down period and had to figure out his way out of that. And he did. And he won another Cy Young Award. Maybe he wasn't as good as he was in 2018, but he was still pretty darn good. And he still was Jacob DeGrom. And he still was an ace. And that's all you can ask about Pete Alonzo is be that power presence in the middle of the order, continue to play at average to above average first base. If he could even come close to being in the conversation for a gold glove, then, oh, geez, you got yourself something really special there. But be the emotional energy and leader that this team has not had. In a lot of ways, he's showing leadership characteristics and qualities that you never saw out of David Wright. David was more of that, let me go out there, play hard, be a professional, you know, say the bland thing in front of the media. I mean, you never would hear David Wright talk about getting drunk on a float. That wasn't the way he rolled. That wasn't his personality and his style. Pete Alonso's authentic. He's himself. And you got to wonder how long will they allow him to be that before they go after him. And you, let me tell you, and this I see this on Twitter a lot. Yankee fans hate him because he takes away the back page from them. And they view him as a threat to judge. And they always want to have the superstar that everybody loves. The quote-unquote leader. They had that in there uh, with Jeter. You know, they had that at one point back in the day with Mattingly. You know, now they want to have, they so want Judge to be that guy. 
And he hasn't been able to stay on the field, Judge. And he hasn't been able to win a championship. I mean, those are the two things that come into play. I mean, other than his first season, Judge has been a guy that's been injured. Some freak stuff. But Pete Alonso, to me, is where this team turned last year. And McNeil, too, but Alonso specifically where it was a mindset that had been missing. Was missing for the most part, for the better part of over 10, 10 years since 2006. Uh, you got a little of it in 2015, but that was a little different type of situation. I think everything just kind of came like, you know, lightning in a bottle. This was true leadership. You know, taking the bull by the horn, putting a personality and an attitude uh, to this team where this will be Pete Alonso's team. And I think you'll see a C one day in front of Pete Alonso's jersey. And uh, I think this year's critical. And it'll be really interesting to see how he handles the pressure. Because there's a lot of pressure. And so far, you listen to his comments. It's about preparation. It's about improving on the things that are still his weaknesses. And he sees defense as that. And about the team. And about winning. And winning championships. And they're all talking like that. And it's not just talk. Any of the 30 teams could talk about winning a championship. Making the playoffs. Some more realistically than others. But are those teams putting the work in? Do they have the talent, number one? We know they do. Are they putting the work in to be able to actually do this? And, and, and do they have the focus day in and day out to within their role, within what their scope of this team is with them? Are they willing to put the time and the preparation in? We'll see. So far, so good. Pete Alonso is a good case study in what this team needs to be all about. And you got to love what he says. Where's the catch? I hope there is none. Because the more I hear Pete Alonso talk, the more I say, this guy's for real. Even though I've been waiting for the other shoe to drop. Because we're cynical New Yorkers. When it's too good to be true, it's often not. But sometimes it is. Other teams have had guys like Pete Alonso. Why not the Mets? Let's take a quick break. When we return, we have more here on the Talking Mets podcast. A new playoff system. I think it's a road too far. And I'll tell you what. I have some solutions to make this a little bit better. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this to me it makes it more interesting it makes it appealing not only to the fan but also to the markets that some of them just barely get, uh, would get in or not it gives more teams an opportunity to get to where they want and it takes away the quote-unquote tanking uh possibility of a lot of teams it makes it more interesting for free agency uh moving forward it makes it more interesting for the trade market moving forward um it keeps teams and player it keeps players uh sometimes grounded to their to their team because their team still feels why would we trade them if we now have seven possible teams of trying to get in again so the bottom line these three wild cards, the three bottom teams, they would have no first-round home games at all. So if you pick, you play at home, it's that advantage that you have for having the best record. I like that. They gave it some thought to this. This is also what we would see in reality TV. Think about it that way also because now uh, the second-best team now gets to pick who they play. Right. And that becomes reality TV. And at the end of the day, you want people tuned in. Who would you rather play? Why would you rather play that right. team? All those discussions, all the methods of my pitching staff uh, does well and compares well against this team, X team, because I have my, I probably have more lefties. They have a lot more lefties in their in their uh, on their lineup. It's just the matchups play so much better, and I think that would be so enticing to the fan base. It would keep them intrigued. The conversations it becomes barbershop talk. You can say whatever you want. So far. 
from what I've read and what is there with logistics, it feels and it seems right. You know, baseball has never really, I think, always accepted who it is, especially on the Rob Manfred. It always seems to be this tweaking of the game, and you hear a lot of the media, and they're at fault for this too because they criticize the uh, the league for not catering to a new age and millennials and all these you know, individuals that supposedly can't be baseball fans because the game's too slow and it's too stodgy and they're not, you know, running around with a hat on backwards and flipping bats. And all I know, it's a $10 billion industry flush with cash. You know, maybe there's some attendance issues and there's certainly some aesthetic issues. Even Joe Madden now, who's, you know, Mr. Analytics with the Cubs uh, coming out and saying maybe analytics has gone too far. But when I read this article from the New York Post, and it was Joel Sherman about their ideas about expanding the playoffs in 2022, basically going to seven playoff teams in uh, in both leagues uh, combined, and then having a reality TV scenario where you know the division winners with the first and second best record will get to pick their opponents. I'm just saying to myself, I'm like. My Lord, where are we where are we going here? And to tell you how crazy this thing is, if if this very proposal has existed over the last five, six years, you would have a number of teams under five hundred make the postseason. Uh, you know, an NBA, NHL style situation. And look, we've had scenarios in both the NHL and the NBA where teams with losing records have made runs. I mean the Houston Rockets, I believe it was nineteen eighty three. Six, maybe? Made the finals against the Celtics with a losing record? Now, you know, the old you are what your record says you are. I understand they had Akeem Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson, that team. Uh, the Knicks with an eight seed and, and barely above 500 record made a finals run. So it does happen. Different sport. But, I mean, in 162 games, when you're the uh, Miami Marlins in 2016 and you make the postseason, or you're the Mets in 2014, and you make the postseason with 79 wins. Or the Pirates with 79 or 80 wins over the years making the postseason. The Rays in 2017 with an 80 and 82 record making the postseason. Well, this is a road too far. Because when you start to get into a game, and I understand what they're trying to do here, where they're trying to keep interest in more markets. Because now you have almost half the league on uh, you know seven teams in each league making the playoffs, that's 14 out of 30. You almost have half the league making the postseason. You're certainly going to keep interest in certain cities, and not just the power cities, not just New York, St. Louis, Chicago, Boston, L.A. Because when you start looking at when they do these like social media polls about most hated teams, those are the cities that come up. Baseball, I, th- I think the concern the league has, and I could be wrong, but I think the concern the league has is that the sport is becoming L.A., Chicago, St. Louis, New York, Boston, and everybody else. And, yeah, you have your Nationals that win a championship, and you have uh, you know, maybe some diehard fans of the Houston Astros or the Minnesota Twins. You have diehard fans everywhere. But those are the cities that matter. Those are the cities that have the money under the current economic system to continue to build power rosters. And... Let's face it, if you have a power roster 
and you're continuing to spend money, you may not win a championship because you still may do a lot of wrong things, and it's still very much a game that's uh, a bounce of the ball, and there's a lot of small nuances that come into play no matter how big your payroll. You have a good chance of making the postseason every year, like the Yankees have uh, for the most part since the early 90s. Uh, because you just your margin of error has been uh, covered up by uh, an increase because of money, so you start to bring these other postseason teams in. You know, you get a hot pitcher. All of a sudden, an eighty-win Tampa team beats the Yankees. I have a problem with that, and I think you can accomplish the same thing by maybe going a little bit back to the future and realigning divisions or realigning the league. Now, I think part of the problem here is is that owners have fallen in love with hotshot Ivy League executive GMs, and I have nothing against Ivy League executives and smart people. I don't. I think there's a lot of guys who've come in like Theo Epstein and have done incredible things in building the organizations. I mean, think about Theo Epstein having broken two curses. Think about his place in baseball history for doing that. So I have nothing against them. What I have against them is that they focus more on team building and these long rebuilds to find the perfect. And they basically, it's that old saying, don't make the good be, don't make the perfect be the enemy of the good. And at some point, being good, and, and you could still strive to improve on the good and strive for that perfection. Uh, but if you sacrifice good and be bad or perfect, you have a lot of bad baseball. And that's why you have a lot of bad teams out there that have these endless rebuilds that uh, value these prospects uh, that may or may never, may or may not ever see a light of day on a baseball field. And sometimes I feel they market them so well and they, they focus so much on their tools that you have to ask, is this, can this guy, can they, play, can they play the game? And sometimes the answer is no. So what they're trying to do, the league, I think, is lowering the bar to get more teams in because now if you're on that cusp, you know, if you have to be one of the top half teams in the league in terms of good, your your owner's going to say, "Hey, I need you to try to win. I need you to trade that prospect to get that veteran. That yeah, maybe a short term deal, and we may regret giving up that pitcher in three years, but I have a chance to make the tournament. And baseball wants to get to be in the tournament, and I have no problem with the postseason truly becoming what it really is, which is a tournament. Yeah, it's going to take away from the 162 games, but." There is a value if you set up the tournament in a way where if you win an exorbitant number of games and have the number one or number two seed, you have some advantages. Maybe you just play at home without travel. I have no problem with that. And I think that's part of what needs to happen. I think you need to be able to give teams that achieve win divisions uh, an advantage where they don't have to pop back and forth over coasts or maybe they're home the whole time. Essentially a four-game series or a five-game series like the regular season. You have your your team playing at home. The other team plays on the road. Make it tough for them. I have no problems with that. And they can do that. And it sounds like they're thinking about that as part of, of this program. Now, there are some good concepts like that coming into play. And I have no problem with them trying to get more teams in, potentially, um, to create some competition. But I think this is just a road too far. I propose a couple of realignment scenarios that I think would achieve the same thing uh, and potentially, I think, five teams. I think five is where you really need to go into the postseason. And you have that now. But I think you also can do it in a way where maybe you get the better teams at the top winning. And then you really get competition uh, for the for the other playoff spots that are out there. 
you know, maybe getting into that situation. So, uh, you know, five to six teams, I think, eliminates the possibility, six the most, that you're going to have a losing record. Now, if you have a losing record, then at that point, then you have a really down year, a lot of mediocrity. But once you go to seven, right now, you don't have seven teams in the league that have winning records in every season. And you start to see bad teams creep in. It's very dangerous. So my first scenario is getting back to the basics. Go back to the original four divisions. NL East, AL East, you know, basically NL East, NL West, AL East, AL West. So I would do this. Atlanta, Mets, Phillies, Pirates, Miami, Nats, Cubs, St. Louis in the East, San Francisco, San Diego, LA, Colorado, Milwaukee, Cincinnati, Arizona in the West. That's it. You have two division winners. Atlanta, let's say, wins the division, and maybe the Dodgers win the other division. Let's just throw that scenario. And now you have four teams vying in almost a wild card division standings where now you could have them play in like a four, you know, to- and those two teams get buys, and then you have these teams that play each other to kind of get into the tournament and then have the right to play in the division series. Now you have four teams that could all be in the same division. I mean, that's what you do. I mean, it could all be depending on how it is, you really narrow, when you get multiple divisions, like three divisions, it's possible that you get a division winner that's kind of weak. And I think that's where maybe some of the inequity could come into play. So that's the first. I call it the back to the basis. In the American League in that scenario, you have the Yankees, Tigers, Boston, Toronto, Cleveland, Tampa, Baltimore, and the White Sox in the AL East. AL West is Oakland, Kansas City, Minnesota, Anaheim, Texas, Houston, and Seattle. So to me, that brings you back to our childhood when we had four divisions. You still have the two division winners, but guess what? You had four playoff teams. You have six instead of seven, and and away you go. And to me, that that's part of it. Or you don't want to do the extra uh, four teams. You have the top wild card team. They see two teams play it out. Then they play a quick three-gamer against each other. I think the higher seed gets all the home games, so you eliminate travel and days off. And then you go and you try to get into the NLDS uh, against one of the other two teams, you could do something like that. So, But I think more importantly, I think if you have the four playoff teams, you basically get two winners, they play each other, they square off, and then you know, the, depending on what their record is, top team plays the bottom seed, second record plays the other, the, you, know, the, 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 you know, the top team plays the lower seed, second tier plays the higher seed, that's it. And again, it really, the minimal margin between what team is which sometimes is is negligible it doesn't matter uh, but this reality tv and picking opponents i just think it's goofy and uh let's go by record it's it's almost as bad as the coin flip they used to use to determine home field uh at times when there was ties or how they used to flip from american league and national league uh in home field in the world series and then you have you know the mets because the houston oilers had home playoff games uh excuse me home games they, ha- they didn't even have home field against the astros and think about what a big deal that was. Mets win 108 games. They don't have home field against the Astros because they flip-flop again. You know, one plays, you know, east-west. And because of the way it turns out, they couldn't do it that year, even though it was the Mets that should have been the one with the home field because it was conflicting with the Oilers. It just it just boggles my mind when you think back at some of the stupidity that goes on in, in baseball. Now, the second option is a nuclear option. I'll say it's a nuclear option because... You eliminate the National League and the American League, and this is more progressive. Uh, it's not, and it might be in some ways you might think it's more progressive than what baseball is proposing now. You call it Major League Baseball, just like the NBA is the NBA, and you just have different divisions based on time zone. 
So you get different, basically the majority of your games are going to be played in a certain time zone and you'll play less games outside of your time zone. So you keep everybody kind of in a certain time zone. Maybe the games end earlier. You don't have 10 o'clock starts as much and everything. But you have the Atlantic, the Central, the Midwest, and the Pacific. This is like the NBA uh, before the NBA started splitting up their divisions. Um, in the Atlantic Division, you have the Yankees, the Mets. Now, this includes Universal DH, which I'm assuming would also be part of my other plan. Universal DH, so you have one rule now. Yankees, the Mets, the Red Sox, the Blue Jays, the Phillies, the Nationals, the Orioles in the Atlantic Division. The Central Division is the Braves, the Miami Marlins, Tampa, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, both Chicago teams, and Cincinnati. In the Midwest... You have the Astros, the Rangers, the Diamondbacks, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Minnesota, Colorado, Detroit. And then in the Pacific Division, you have uh, L.A. and Anaheim, Oakland, uh, Arizona. Well, no, I have uh, Oakland, Seattle, San Francisco, San Diego. Or you can move Arizona to that division and take them out of the Midwest, depending on how you want to make it out. So there's a lot of different ways you can do all this. And... uh, you know, to me, that's much more progressive now. So you're breaking them up. Now, you're also eventually, I think, going to have two more expansion teams. It's a possibility you'll see Montreal come into play. That's where it gets tricky because now uh, Tampa is in the essential. You might want Montreal to be uh, in, in the Atlantic. And you really should have D.C. and Baltimore in the same division. So how does that play out? It could get tricky under this secondary plan. I think it's a lot cleaner on my first one. Uh, I would be all for going back to the standard traditional you still have american league you still have national league you have the old divisions you go back to the basics and you could have kept it this way you never had to go back to expanding to three divisions they went nfl style when they changed the rules back in 1994 go back to the original divisions i think that's the i think that's the best way to do it and you just have four wild cards and you have a wild card tournament you have the two division winners that get some time to rest and buy and then you play out the two wild card winners in that tournament against the one and the two seeds, the NL East winner, the NL West winner, AL East winner, AL West winner, and make it like that. To me, that changes it up, and I think it makes, I mean, yeah, you're, you're reducing the amount of division winners, but because you have four potential playoff teams, I mean, you're asking them to be, in theory, in the top half of their league for the most part, depending on where it shakes out with the divisions. I mean, if you can't put a ball club together that wins 85 freaking games to be in the top half of the league then you're not you don't deserve a GM job I'll tell you why and I don't think I could be a good GM because I don't have the relationships and all that stuff but if you just want to put me in a vacuum and to build your team with your roster and your front office and the owner says to me Mike Silva you you have this great podcast you have a lot of great ideas I'm gonna hire you put me in the top 50% of my league because that's where I need to be I think I could do it I don't know about you. I think I could do it. I think a lot of you could do it out there. And I'm not trying to be funny here because I know how hard it is to run an organization. Forget about building a team. That's a vacuum thing. You, that's paper. Forget about the personalities and the people and all the other stuff. That's where you, you're not qualified to be a GM. You have to really you have to know your stuff. It's just about building a team. I think I could do it. And if you, te- if, if, you if these GMs are telling these guys that they can't do it, then come on. That's silly. So that's my proposal. Forget about the foolishness and the nonsense, what you're hearing. Back to the basics. American League, National League, two divisions, four wild cards each league. You expand on the playoffs. You get yourself more tournament-style play. 
Forget about reality TV. Forget about all picking things and having a dais and all that other garbage. Baseball, just be who you are and go back to your basics. Add more playoff teams from the basic foundation that you had for 100 years and it'll work. Trust me. All right, let's take a quick break. We're not done yet. We're going to put a little bow and final thoughts on sign stealing and wrap up right after this. I think when you deal with this kind of scale um, and you go the the length that they did, and it's been well documented and explained, that's where it starts angering people collectively from performances that were adverse or performances that could have been, um, you know, given a, a huge advantage to have success. And I just think that people <clears throat> in their anger have to be careful and make sure they're clean when they're going to come okay. out and spew a lot of anger. Got to make sure their 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 club has been clean because this is not the only teams that have done things. Uh, this is the one team that got caught. This is the one team that took it to a, a, the next level. And it was three years ago, and, and one would, would, you know, one plus one is not always two, but in our minds right now, we're going to feel every rumor is true. Everything we believe about them no longer has any credibility, so whatever they say, you know, it's it's a bad place to be. They put themselves in this place, and they're going to have to walk it out. There's no other way but to wear it and deal with it and prove to the rest of baseball that that was then, and they're just as good a players now as they were so-called given an advantage back then. That's where the anger starts building up, because in your mind – Competition's supposed to be I'm better than you because I executed. I'm not better than you because I have this advantage that doesn't even give you a level playing field. That's where I think, you know, you start realizing where players come from and where that line had been crossed in a in a really, really um tough to understand way. All right, final thoughts. I just wanted to get to the sign-stealing, and I really didn't want to make more about this. We've talked about this so much, and, of course, this is a Mets podcast, and uh, this the Mets were really just collateral damage here. Like I said earlier, I thought Jake Marisnik and J.D. Davis did what they had to do. you got to take your you know lumps from the media. You have to put your head down. You have to show a humble, contrite attitude. They did that. No doubt in my mind, I think it's a lot easier when you're no longer with the team that's being tarred and feathered. Uh, I think the Astros uh, definitely did a road too far. I blame a lot of the teams if they knew about it. Uh, why didn't they do more to stop it? And I think that's where, meaning, what did you do within your, not the league, because the league did nothing to stop it. And Manfred had a press conference, uh, you know, what was it, about 4 o'clock today? And he came across arrogant and dismissive and, again, shows why he's got weak people around them because they had no idea how to, address this until Mike Fires comes out. I mean, that's basically what they said. Mike Fires doesn't come out. This doesn't, nothing, none of this comes out. Carl Beltran's manager of the Mets, Alex, Alex Cora's managing the Red Sox, AJ Hinch and Lunhow are still in charge, and that just shows you how weak this league is. And it's been weak for a while, not just in the Manford, but we've talked about that in prior podcasts. So um, I, I think you heard the comments from John Smoltz, and I, what, this is where I want to take to put a bow on the on today's broadcast and also put a bow on this sign-stealing because I'm really not interested in talking about it much more, uh, especially because I don't think it really pertains to the Mets any longer. Really never did, except for the fact their manager played for the Astros two years earlier. 
which I'll tell you, and again, non sequitur, maybe the Mets lucked into the right decision. I got to tell you, I like what I see out of Rojas so far. Too early to really make those determinations, but what have you. But you heard what John Smoltz said on MLB Network Radio earlier this weekend about how those who are coming out, whether it be Brian Cashman with the Yankees, Araldis Chapman, Cody Bellinger, whoever, even members of the Mets who have made their comments, Marcus Stroman, Noah Syndergaard, I'll put Mets in there. You better make sure your organizations, like John Smoltz said, are rock solid from an integrity standpoint. And I'm talking about, hey, let's not play that gray area. Well, I didn't use trash cans and I didn't use spreadsheets, you know. I didn't use any of that stuff. You know what? You think Carlos Beltran, who played for a number of teams before the Astros, didn't have some methods of sign stealing? I still believe him saying that to the Astros, as you heard in the report that came out at the Athletic, that their methods were antiquated. Tells you he was doing something. You heard reports from Peter Gammons and then uh, dismissed by former Met, former Yankee Chris Young, saying that he learned a lot of the Apple Watch stuff from the Yankees. So be careful, Brian Cashman. Be careful. Now, you may think you know what's going on, and you may think that some of the methods you used were not as nefarious as what the Astros did, but you better be sure because I got to tell you, those that speak out that are really outraged, and there's a number of players outraged, and you know what? The best policing of the game is the players themselves saying, hey, there's gamesmanship and then there's stupidity. And I think the analytics revolution includes a lot of stupidity. And I put this sign stealing into it because it really does lump into using a lot of technology and a lot of market inefficiencies, which have been touted about for many, many years since the days of Moneyball. Um, So you better make sure your organizations are clean because I had some feelings throughout the year, Atlanta, LA, Mets would go to these places. And all of a sudden it was much harder to get these guys out there than it was when they came to City Field. It was really interesting. And let me tell you guys, the Astros pitchers and their incredible spin rate, maybe that's not video or trash cam banging, but there's a reason why they go to Houston and they get a great spin rate. And I don't think it has to do with analytics and heat maps and all the stuff they're touting. I think it's a little thing called pine tar, and I think they may have found the solution there. And let's see if that same pine tar grip that Jarrett Cole, who knows nothing about any stealing or cheating with the Astros, he was just there two years, all of a sudden, you see guys like Jay Happ and Severino and Montgomery have these great spin rates. Just keep an eye out for that. That's all I'll say. Because, you know, to me, you know, this sign-stealing thing, this outrage, this is not just about the Yankees. This is about gamesmanship and how far is too far. And uh, let's not tar and feather one organization when gamesmanship goes on. And now it's just brought to the forefront. What do I What do I know? I can tell you that the article from The Athletic... Uh, really affirms to me that the Mets made the right decision. And and, and you don't hear me often back off from a position. I still think the fact that Cora and Beltran, uh, they went after them after the fact, um, still doesn't totally 100% sit right with me. But I do know that after hearing some information and talking to people in baseball, that the thing about Beltran and the players are correct when they say Beltran, I don't think intimidated any player into doing it. I think his presence and status in the game and who he is or was at the time 
makes it very difficult for players. And think of it like peer pressure in high school to go against him. And I know that management and A.J. Hinch found it very difficult to go against him. And if you remember going back to the Mets days when they basically had a coup against Willie Randolph led by Tony Bernazard, Beltran was one of Bernazard's supporters. So Beltran has a reputation during his career, I don't want to say to be a malcontent, but to be a presence that can alter a clubhouse. And I believe from what I heard, that was the concern by A.J. Hinch, that if he pushed too hard, it could alter the dynamic of the clubhouse and derail what they thought was a championship team, which turned out to be a championship team. Beltran basically needed an edge. He wasn't the same player, and he needed to take his methods of gaining an edge that fell within the gamesmanship gray area to another level. Now, he wasn't installing the video cameras and all this stuff, but he was the one encouraging, it sounds like, from a player perspective, all this. I think they can't punish the players because of the CBA and the uh, you know, Players Association and all that stuff. So they make Beltron the poster child for them. Seeing the outrage and the distraction that this could become, if Beltron still was the Mets manager, especially this week with this report coming out, I think it would definitely take away from, you know, look, Pete Alonso and McNeil and these guys, they could play for anybody. I mean, they, they basically said that themselves when this whole thing went down. But the last thing this team needs, especially as they're trying to prepare and work on the things that are important towards winning ball games, is to be spending day in and day out on their manager who needs to be involved and engage in the work that goes into helping this team prepare, being involved in spending his time talking to the media, apologizing, explaining themselves, the players answering the same stupid questions. Marisnik and J.D. Davis did it on Friday, and that was it. It was over. And that's the way it should be. The Mets should not be involved any more than that. The only involvement is the guys that used to play for Houston. And Beltron's gone, and at that point, I said to myself as I'm watching all this unfold with the Astros during the week, and now Manfred's press conference, and, and seeing how Marisnik and J.D. Davis had to talk about it, I just said to myself, you know what? They made the right call. I didn't like it. I, th I thought the media pushed them into it. And, and they certainly, I think, played a big part in it. But when it's all said and done, if you knew you had a solid in-house candidate, and they, they, di they did, I think they had more than one in their minds, uh, why put yourself through it? Why put yourself through it when you have a team that could do something special? And I really think they believe this team could do something special if all the certain uh, things that have to go right go right and you put the time and effort to uh, work on uh, leveraging the things that you know are good about this team. So they made the right decision. I think that's where I would put the bow on the sign stealing. Mets made the right decision. Um, I think the players are taking their their uh, their 50 lashes with a noodle, old, that old corny saying. And yeah, Rob Manfred continues to look arrogant and dismissive. Not surprised there. And I'll echo the words of uh, John Smoltz. Be careful if you're part of these teams that are criticizing. Make sure your house is in order. Let's not hear about any shenanigans this year because you now put yourself on a very pious mountain. Let's make sure that your house is clean. Don't throw stones when you live in a glass house, is the old saying they, they uh, always put out there. I'm throwing you a lot of old sayings here, guys. I guess I'm dating myself and showing my age. Hey, we're out of time. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to this edition of the Talking Mets podcast. No guests this week. Hope you enjoyed this very long monologue, I would say, of the Talking Mets podcast. If you want to let me know your thoughts, I'd especially be interested to hear your thoughts about the playoff suggestion I made, the Back to the Future 
playoff suggestions, send me an email, MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia. And you get the show on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If there's one I'm not on and you want me on it, let me know. I'd love to be a help to you. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy your President's Day if you're off. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Take care, everybody. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.